Welcome to Sound Business, the podcast that reveals how sound affects your business outcomes, from the productivity and well-being of your staff, to your sales and profit, your brand value, your marketing effectiveness, your customer experience, and all your key relationships. I'm Julian Treasure, Chairman of the Sound Agency and five-time TED speaker, with over 100 million views for my TED Talks about sound, and I'll be your guide as we discover the power of sound to boost your business's success, as well as your own happiness, effectiveness, and well-being. I first met Professor Charles Spence in 2007 when we both spoke at an event in London, back in the days when people used to stand on stages and speak to live audiences. He astounded me then, and he's continued to do so ever since, with the revelations from his work which is all about the ways in which the senses interact and affect one another, known in scientific circles as cross-modal effects. Charles is an experimental psychologist, and he leads the Cross-Modal Research Group at Oxford University. For decades, he's been exploring the complex and often surprising ways in which our senses can reinforce or contradict one another publishing his findings in over 500 scientific papers and in some fascinating books, including Gastrophysics and, more recently, Sense Hacking. He's worked closely with the iconoclastic chef Heston Blumenthal, helping to create food that you listen to as well as see, smell and taste, and has carried out groundbreaking research on multisensory product design, packaging, brand names, and buildings. I caught up with Charles on sabbatical at his farmhouse in the Cloud Forest just outside of Bogota, Colombia. Charles, it's a pleasure to speak to you all the way to Bogota, as I understand it, in the rainforest there, which is very exotic and probably engages all the senses, I should imagine. Yeah, it certainly does. <laughs> <laughs> Let me start by asking you a very mundane question, and it's not an easy one to answer, I know. How many senses are there, actually? Who knows? Uh, at least five. Everyone can probably at least agree on that. But quite how many at the fringes is a topic of discussion, debate, and disagreement. So uh, I'd probably go for somewhere between five and ten, I guess. <laughs> that was roughly the range that my uh, students gave me when I asked them that question a few years ago. Uh, of course, sight and sound and touch and taste and smell are the five that people think of normally first but beyond that there may be you know a pheromonal sense for sort of social chemical communication there are maybe 20 25 i guess uh, internal sensing like sense of a need for oxygen uh, and so on of internal state and uh, beyond that maybe some other interesting things i'm curious at the moment about sort of you know a magnetic sensing which has occasionally appeared in the serious scientific literature over the decades. Do some of us have that ability or is it all nonsense? Well, which is a very interesting one because, you know, living up here in Orkney, we see birds migrating all the time, navigating thousands of miles, presumably using that kind of sense. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. there are animals which have it, even if we don't, and we probably do to some degree. But the key thing then, and I know this is the heart of all of your work over the past decades is how the senses interact with one another. 
And perhaps you could give us some insights into just some of the most common ways in which the senses interact and, and why that happens. I guess all creatures that have more than one sense, which turns out to be all of them really, even from single cell organisms up, connect those senses for kind of the coordinated control of action. It wouldn't make much sense if you know if your if your temperature sense was was saying go this way, it's nice and warm over there, but your chemical sense was saying you know go the other way because it's a, a nicer chemical gradient on the other side. Then an organism just wouldn't know what to do, and so to try and avoid that. Conflict senses are coordinated for the control of action, perception, behavior. And um, that interaction seems to be explained by various sort of rules about how the brain combines the senses, how it decides what's really out there. Perhaps most prominent amongst which these days is Bayesian causal inference, kind of weighting the, the more uh, precise sense more highly. But these kind of rules um, can be sort of lead to some sort of surprising results, and that's where most of our interest lies in everything from you know, surprising finding that you can fool the wine experts into smelling the, the, the red wine aromas simply by colouring a white wine red, because we're all sort of visually <laughs> dominant, through kind of the, the, the magician's tricks and the ventriloquist's dummy illusion when we hear voices at the location of the lips we see moving on the cinema screen or the agitated lips of the um, ventriloquist's dummy, uh, again, showing visual dominance. Um, and these sort of sensory dominances, very often our vision that dominates the other senses because maybe more of our brain's given over to processing that. But we're interested in particular in, in how the other senses can sometimes take a lead in our experience and driving behavior. Uh, and also how sometimes our brain can, can combine subtle sensory cues and give rise to a seemingly more pronounced, enhanced response. That's what happens when you get things right, when, when things are congruent. But of course, very often those who've been interested in stimulating more of their senses or of their consumer senses have often done so by thinking about the senses independently, I think. And that can sometimes lead to kind of incongruency or a mismatch where you design something where one sense is telling you you know, be alert, be awake, get ready to respond. But another sense like smell might be saying, calm down, relax, it's all going to be okay. And that sort of sensory incongruency can uh, lead to various suppression effects. So three different kinds of rules, really. So sensory dominance, superlativity, and uh, sensory sort of suppression. Uh, these three play out in many situations. And hopefully by designing better, you can kind of optimize our experience of products of places, of environments, maybe even a well-being by making sure that the uh, senses are playing to their forte, as it were, and all the senses are giving a congruent message without overloading the observer. So overloading would be the case where I think one of your pieces of research showed that we taste less well in noisy restaurants. Is that the effect of overloading one sense, in this case, hearing with massive amounts of noise and it causing us to be less sensitive in another sense because our brain, I guess, is so busy with the first mm -hmm. one. Possibly overload in, in a sense, but also maybe an example of sort of masking that sometimes, you know, one sense can mask or obscure our ability to, to experience another one, it can distract us. And that seems to be the case uh, when we're tasting. But interestingly, while lots of research does show that loud 
noise, bit music or other kinds of you know, airplane engine noise, does suppress our ability to to discriminate you know, the sweetness of a drink, the saltiness of a dish, the alcohol content of your cocktail, say. It doesn't affect all tastes equally. And bizarrely, somehow, especially airplane noise, which comes in at about 80 decibels, so a bit quieter than you get in many bars and restaurants these days, but still pretty loud, mm. that airplane noise seems to sort of selectively suppress our ability to taste sugar and salt, say, in airline food but at the same time actually enhances our ability to detect and perceive the umami, kind of the mysterious fifth taste, perhaps explaining why there's so many airplane passengers uh, drink Bloody Marys and tomato juice on the airplane when they never do so on the ground, because uh, tomatoes are very rich in umami, Worcester sauce and your Bloody Mary, another source of umami. And that fact that sound and noise differentially affects our different tastes then kind of says maybe there's something very special going on here that's that's beyond just sensory overload or perhaps even beyond just noise masking taste, but some more intricate interaction between the senses that affects our behaviour and presumably can be used then to um, to actually enhance our experience in the skies or elsewhere. And I guess that's a good example of the way in which designers need to understand this interaction because that means that when you're designing food for planes, you'd need to put a bit more sugar and salt in, perhaps, mm -hmm. in order to have people taste the way they would on the ground. Yep. Can you say a bit more about superadditivity? Because I always think of this in terms of, you've used the word congruent as well, birdsong at night, for example, incongruent. It's just wrong, you know, when the birds are mm -hmm. singing, it's time to wake up, it's dawn, it's time to be alert and so forth. So that kind of sensory clash, which creates a, a sort of tension feeling of uncomfortableness in a way is something that we see all too often when people are designing things with one sense in mind and forgetting about the other ones, isn't it? Mm -hmm. I think there are different kinds of congruence to be concerned about. And um, this is yeah, an area that's actually of, of kind of great current interest to me. I've got a folder full of stuff all about um, different meanings of congruence and it can be, as you say, bird song at night, which seems wrong. It should be, you know, four o'clock in the morning here is when they start, four till six a.m. So, like a temporal congruence to when we experience things. But that can also, you know, on occasion work well. We've got here some horsemen of the night, Caballero de Noche, which is, I think, a, a kind of night flowering jasmine. And normally I expect, you know, that the warm hours of the day to be when the world smells, not at night. Things, you know, it's cooler, there's less aroma and smell and fragrance in nature. And yet this night flowering jasmine sort of stands out. It's incongruent, but in that case, it seems to work well. But beyond those sort of temporal kind of conflicts or incongruences, one might also think, you know, does it make sense to play the sounds of nature or the tropical rainforest in Glasgow airport, say, as, as they used to do? In some sense, it's sort of incongruent. And, and even beyond that, you know, if I'm, if I'm creating some sort of biophilic environmental design for an office, for a home, for, for relaxation, say, do I need to think about whether they, the sounds of nature match up with the sights of nature? If I took you know, the, 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 the birds we have here in the garden outside Bogota in the, in the cloud forest, it would be natural sounds, but they probably wouldn't match with an image or a video of, a, of an English forest, say. Both are nature, so incongruent in one sense, but then incongruent in, in some other way, 
So I think there's a lot, a lot of stuff to be done here, thinking about when does congruency matter, when does it not? That's fascinating because in Australia, for example, we have an installation with a major organisation there, and we have designed sound based on an Australian location called Rotnest Island, which has got at least half a dozen different habitats on it, woodland, beaches, marshes, and so forth. We've taken all the local fauna and we've created a journey through those soundscapes, which is quite close to where this installation is. Mm -hmm. uh, so in that case, it was very much a question of reinforcing uh, what's natural. But as you say, it can sometimes be interesting to challenge and uh, to give people an experience which they weren't expecting. And it can stand out like your night, Jasmine, gloriously does. I remember that from my trips to Bogota, a wonderful smell that hits you so strongly because it's dark. Mm -hmm. yeah, and, uh, and I think it sort of becomes a difficult one because in, in some of our work going back, I guess, 10 or 15 years ago, we were trying to design offices and other indoor spaces to help people to alert them when they're feeling tired or to relax them maybe at the end of the, of the working day. And there we might have got research findings to say this colour was particularly relaxing, this colour was alerting, this scent was relaxing, this scent was alerting. But simply by putting you know, together an alerting uh, scent, which might be citrus, with an alerting colour, which might be bright red, again, they sort of conflict at one level, because red isn't the colour of citrus. So it's incongruent, but also congruent. And it is a real sort of mine, I think. Of, and so much of our lives, I guess, when we do uh, have nature uh, soundscapes that are you know increasingly often being used so the sounds of, of falling water in the offices to, to open plan offices to to mask the um background noise that can be beneficial but it's also incongruent so you know when does it matter how does it matter and when not is um big topic i think and one that's I, at least i'm only starting to get to to grips with so much to explore here. And I know you've recently, as well as your wonderful book, you've recently been writing academically about sound in healthcare. And I'm fascinated to know what you've discovered about that, because I know that the WHO recommended guidelines are being absolutely slaughtered in many hospitals. There was a report by Johns Hopkins finding that hospitals are 12 times noisier than they're supposed to be. According to the WHO, it's been described as pandemonium. So not just noise, but also, of course, light, air quality, biophilia indoors. I mean, there are so many things they can do. What, what have you found about the senses in healthcare facilities? Yeah, so in the new book, Sense Hacking, had a whole chapter on music in medicine and multisensory design of the hospital environment. And um, I think while there's a role to be played for all the senses, for the lighting levels and noise, but also scent, of course, the, the quality of the taste and food in, in hospitals all play a role. Perhaps it's sound is the is a single most important element, both because of those phenomenally loud levels of all the alerts and the, and the warning signals and the beeps and the buzzers and the, and the hard surfaces that, of the floor that, you know, you do have these reports of, of individuals brought to tears in their final days, not by the illness so much as just that like, permanent noise that just doesn't allow them to sleep. And thinking about how that's going to negatively impact recovery of those who are not getting enough sleep is what one thing. But then also in work we did, or like a review with uh, Steve Keller, 
that looked at the whole literature of actually using music in a more constructive way in the healthcare. So music and medicine. And there is amazing actually how much literature there is already out there over the last 50 years or so. And everything from the music of the operating theatre, you know, would you want your surgeon to be listening to music? And if so, what kind when they work? Hopefully not death metal, that's for sure. No, no not death metal or uh, yeah, a few others one might want to choose to, to avoid there. Uh, another one bites the dust. <laughs> <laughs> but it turns out that the surgeons work better. They perform better at surgical closures with music than without. That patients prior to procedures can become more relaxed if they have music option of listening to music. And then thereafter, after surgery or treatments, can actually recover better and require significantly less painkillers by having this sort of musical analgesia. So really some, some dramatic effects of the, of the beneficial effects of music at all stages of our interaction with the healthcare system, I think. And that's great. I think it's a, you know, a real good sort of test case if it, ha- if it can work there, and if it can really cut the painkillers you need then you know, surely it will work anywhere else as well in less severe and, and difficult situations. But beyond that, what makes me think that in situations like the hospitals where music can help, that music was not constructed, designed, created with hospital care in mind, with pain relief in mind. Mm. Um, as such, it, has, it obeys different constraints of stuff that will work on the radio, I don't know, with three and a half minutes and a, whatever else it might be. But now recognising the power of music to affect us, one might wonder whether it's not time to start deliberately designing music with these various end goals in mind, whether it be increasing productivity, enhancing performance at the gym, reducing pain in the hospital. And this might be a a future that we're sort of heading towards and music being especially important just because it's the kind of thing that you can change about your environment far more easily than anything else. I could tell you about paint colours that will, will make you eat less Perhaps, but that's kind of a bigger commitment to redecorate your home than it is to change the channel that you're listening to. Absolutely. The only differentiation I'd be keen to make based on what you've just said is is the word music, which is, of course, an interesting definitional word. Musical sound, perhaps. Most music is designed by people who are creative to be listened to and to convey what they're trying to communicate emotionally or whatever, not, as you say, by people who are scientifically interested in a certain outcome. So musical sound, which is where we've got into generative sound, can be very, very interesting in in that particular space. But of course, there's a great deal of music that can be applied, and it is the most powerful sound possibly after the human voice out there. So that's fascinating. And the other aspects of your work, which have always been so dramatic, to me, have been involved in the kind of branding product design areas. I mean, the one I always quote on stage, which always gets a, a frisson of response, is the old Lynx case mm-hmm. study. Perhaps you could tell us about that and how dramatically, if you don't think about sound, how this can affect you know, so many aspects of branding, product design, and so forth. Whenever we interact with the world, whenever we press buttons, open packages, masticate food, use a spray like a deodorant spray. There's always sound. Interaction necessarily creates sound. Often we don't think about it because I think we are visually dominant creatures. 
but yet it's there in the background, perhaps subconscious, but it is being perceived. And those background sounds of our interaction with the world are always kind of influencing our experience and a great area for potentially for design work. Not because necessarily sound is the most important sense of them all, but probably the sonic element is the one that may have not had much thought given over to it, be that in product design, packaging design, food design, or any other kind of experience design, branding. It's always about the eye appeal, the visual logo. No one thinks about the sonic logo. And hence, for that reason, there's a lot of scope to improve, to enhance experience. And we've done that with everything from Lynx deodorant can about 15 years ago now, I guess, together with Unilever, looking to see what sort of sounds enhance the user, which in this case is a young male experience of the branded aerosol and showing that you know, certain onset sounds, certain frequencies in the sort of spraying sound would convey the right sort of brand attributes. And that insight was then sort of subsequently designed in to the uh, new packaging for Lynx, which was then launched around the world. So a nice example of something that maybe most young men, when they use Lynx, if they use Lynx, never think about the sound, but it doesn't mean it's not there, hasn't been carefully thought about, engineered, psychoacoustically to convey the right attributes. And what's true, I think, of the links can then, in the years since then, we've extended to everything from the sound of coffee machines, car doors, you know, fridge doors others are working on, everything, you know, packages of bags of crisps, bottles, cans, corks, stoppers, any kind of closure, probably any kind of device makes a sound and the scope to, to engineer it to better match the uh, desired expected or hoped for sort of brand uh, attributes and that's been most extensively i think done in the world of automobiles uh, everything you know, from the, the sound of the of, of that sort of premium mark car engine to the driver inside through the sound of the car doors and so on conveying security but what's been sort of driven from the car industry i think can be applied to pretty much any other product and we can use then the, the science of the senses to try and understand why sound affects us in this way and to get over, you know, the sort of thing that people might say, well, no, I don't really think about the sound of the aerosol when I use one. It's not irrelevant to me. Just because you say that, just because you're not aware of it, doesn't mean it's not there going into your brain and affecting you. I think we're seeing more and more of this sort of more intelligent multisensory design that is the interface really a, a sort of scientific measurement, which is where we come in. I'm not a designer of any shape or form. Working with designers then to help create and assess the creations that hopefully capture the scientific insights, but at the same time are you know, desirable aesthetically to the end user, whoever that might be. I've always thought of car doors as a kind of consensual myth-making, really, because <laughs> we love that drunk feeling of mm -hmm. a big, solid, luxurious car door. But of course, if you took all the padding out that they put in to the car door, it would be a hideous, tinny, open sound of um, a big bit of metal slamming. So there, there must have been an iteration there over the years of, oh, they like that. Let's put a bit more in. And they like it even more. Let's put a bit more in until we arrived at the beautiful drunk. And presumably that's mm -hmm. the way a lot of this kind of product design can move if the manufacturers, the brand owners start to 
listen carefully to what's working for people. And maybe it is you know, in part a matter of trial and error, and in part, you know, just like the, the, the new car smell, which is another one of my sort of favorite stimuli, it's that smell that, you know, is one of the most maybe positively valenced of all smells, but entirely synthetic and nat- unnatural. And just like, you know, the engineers who, who, who optimize the sound of the car door, there are other teams in the car companies optimizing the, the, the new car smell. You're not saying they spray it in there, Charles, are you? Yes. <laughs> so there is no such thing as a new car smell of a natural new car? Uh, there is, but you wouldn't want to smell it. It's all the volatile organic chemicals and smells like a uh, fish that's gone off. If <laughs> your new car's been sitting in the sun for a while, it's all masked and um, synthesized. Um, and, and so I think, well, we can almost teach the consumer or the consumer can learn that any arbitrary stimulus, sound or smell, can become the desired sound or smell. I think beyond that sort of arbitrary element of just associative learning, probably there is something more intrinsic or more fundamental to sounds or scents that have meaning. And you see a lot of this you know, in, in, in the work sort of currently around sort of, you know, the sound design of brand names and sort of sound, sound symbolism. Uh, of, of how certain speech sounds can convey attributes of brands in a way that there's some underpinning logic to or, or, or some connections there that we have that make sense. And you just think of, you know, that low-pitched sounds can only come from big objects. So there's kind of a natural concordance or congruency then that probably brand names for, for big things like wind turbines should be made up of a lower pitched speech sounds and maybe the the jingle should be also lower in pitch and if you play to these sort of natural affordances or natural correspondences i want to call them between sounds and and meaning in any other sense then people are gonna have an easier job of establishing those sense impressions and of the end consumer appreciating them and almost knowing what they mean or, or feeling that there's a rightness there that goes beyond just this sort of arbitrary establishment or pairing of stuff. This would be why presumably the research once uh, I saw showed that we vote for politicians with deeper voices, Caterice Peribus. Mm-hmm. That association of depth with power, size, yeah. importance, significance. And would it also be, uh, now is it Boo Boo and Kiki, those two shapes? Mm-hmm that people use and the boo-boo is a soft shape and the kiki is a spiky little shape uh, because of the way the words sound. So it's this, this is the kind of natural correspondence you're talking mm-hmm. about exploiting in, in design. Fascinating. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a sort of notion that our senses are connected in these surprising ways such that, you know, these meaningless words, boo and kiki, uh, we all think that kiki should be the star-like angular shape and that boo should be the round cloud-like shape. Those sort of associations, we're picking up more and more of them. And what's exciting to me is that if you look back over the last century or so, this notion that our senses are connected has very often been linked up with synesthesia, these kind of rare individuals who see coloured numbers or taste uh, tube stops. But I think that these correspondences that we all share, while they're surprising like synesthesia is, they're fundamentally different in that each synesthete has a different connection between the senses. Synesthetic design is kind of bound to fail, in my view, if it's based on an idiosyncratic connection of one individual 
far better to base these design decisions on the kind of the consensual, agreed correspondences between shapes and colors and tastes and textures and emotions and so on. And that's what's sort of exciting now is to see these correspondences, so to call them, uh, that we all share being studied and, and being separated from synesthesia proper to enable a more sort of scientific approach to design of many things from you, logos to jingles to brand names to packaging shapes. And you know, to really work, because I think the science gives you something, but you know, it's the interface between the design and the creative element and the sort of scientific measurement and, and perhaps insights about where some of these links may come from. And that's what's really exploding at the moment in a way that's fascinating to watch and to be a part of and you know, exciting for the future as well, I think. How much of this is global and how much of it is culturally influenced? I mean, is there a spectrum of these correspondences? Buba and Kiki works everywhere in the world, even here with languages very different from our own and in pre-non-literate societies as well. So I think that's a universal. I have the prediction that we all think that sweet is round and high-pitched, whereas bitter-tasting things are dark and low-pitched and angular. Um, I bet that 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 correspondence between sweet taste and high pitch is probably universal too, because we're all born sticking our tongues out and up and making higher noises when um, we taste something sweet. We're all born sticking our tongues out and down. And this is true of humans, of chimpanzees and of rats. These sort of stereotypical orofacial gestures that we're all born with, uh, resulting in us making different kinds of sounds to sweet and bitter tastes. That's there around the world. And hence, I imagine that one will be universal. So I think many of these correspondences will be universal. Just in the same way, I think that the rules that govern how our brains combine the senses, that we're all born with the same rules, I, I believe, that difference may come occasionally on which combination of things counts as congruent. You know, maybe in, uh, we see in, in the West that the smell of cherry almond, of Mr. Kipling's Bakewell tarts, that smell interacts with sweet tastes. We're also used to sweet tasting desserts with cherry almond aroma, whereas go to Japan and instead it's more salty, marmish tastes interact with that smell. No matter where you are in the world, the same rules that these senses interact and how they interact, but what differs is what's congruent depending on the cuisine that then we've been exposed to from birth and beyond. And of course, you're asking that, which of these correspondences are universal, which are culture specific? That's kind of a big question that's maybe never ending. Um, yes. So there are so many cultures uh, and so many questions one could ask. We, we've probed here and there and find more consistency in at least some of these correspondences. But I think, you know, almost however it turns out, if it's a universal, that's probably great and, uh, and very exciting to the scientists. If it turns out to be a bit more culture specific, then maybe it's more relevant to the sort of marketing end. But I'm optimistic that these things work just because, you know, there's some of them like the, the low pitch sounds go with big objects that sort of built into nature and the physics of, of how objects make sounds when their voice struck, kicked or whatever you might dropped. If it's true of the world then our brain just sort of picks up these natural statistics of the environment, internalizes them. And then it's our job or my job as sort of the psychologist to try and pick up some of these correspondences maybe we don't realize we've internalized, identify them, and then think about how they can be played back in a way 
to optimize design and communication. So Charles, what tips would you have? And I know you talk about this in your book, Sense Hacking. What tips do you have for people who, who want to design their homes using this interplay of the senses to help their health, their well-being, their, their happiness, uh, and you know, to make them feel good? So I think uh, so many of us these days are spending more time at home than ever before due to the pandemic and, and such like. It's probably not that we're spending more time indoors per se, because already pre-pandemic, I think the figures suggested that those of us in the living in urban existence were spending 90 to 95% of our lives indoors. And hence that indoor environment, I think, whether it's just the home or, or elsewhere, becomes really important because it's always there, the atmosphere, the multisensory atmosphere that surrounds us. That probably, you know, we evolved in natural environments that have a certain flow and diurnal variation, but the built environment often removes us from those natural variations, those natural kinds of stimuli. So in the sense, hacking book, I kind of come back again and again to the benefits of trying to bring nature into the home just because we're not aware of our environment very definitely does not mean it's not impacting us. Think about all those cases of sick home or sick building syndrome caused by these volatile organic compounds in buildings without sufficient natural ventilation. And there, it's a bit like you know our own home. We, we never realize it smells unless we come back from like a long holiday and suddenly we walk in the door and suddenly we get it. That smell is always there, but we adapt to it. We kind of filter it out because it's constant. We're really interested in change. And hence, I think, you know, thinking about the smell of our environments, bringing nature smells, be it a well-being bouquet or aromatherapy scents are an effective way of helping to improve our mood, our well-being, our sleep, and so on. Music or, you know, nature sounds, I think, are, are an interesting backdrop. Thinking about bringing plants into the home are also important. And by, you know, trying to think more carefully, I suppose, about the way we evolved might put us in a better position to design the multisensory environments where we live, where we work, where we play, where we sleep, such that they more optimally stimulate our senses in a congruent manner and a manner that you know, we evolved for and which will then hopefully have the beneficial outcomes that so many of us are in a desperate need of these days. Never was a truer word spoken. And Charles, if people want to find out more about you and your work, where would they go? The new book, Sensacking, out in January 2021 with Penguin, Viking Penguin. It's a good place to start. And that really sort of takes people through uh, everyday life, through the home, the office, through sleep, through play, through exercise, and through hospitals as well, thinking about how the senses affect us, connecting to the latest evidence and also you know, providing the kind of recommendations for people who might want to improve their social, emotional, cognitive well-being through a better sort of engagement with and hacking of the senses. Fantastic. Well, I wish you a wonderful rest of your sabbatical in beautiful rainforests surrounding Bogota. It sounds marvellous. And uh, I envy you having that gorgeous sound of the rainforest around you. Mm. Charles, thank you so much. And hopefully the senses will be more in play as a result of your book and your work. We hope you can discover more amazing congruences between the senses. Thank you, Charles. Yeah.
As with Sally Augustine, the message is clear. We experience life in five senses, not just with our eyes. So in designing anything from a brand or some packaging to a home, a workspace or a hospital, we must focus on the whole experience, not just appearance. Super additivity is the goal. A kind of turbo power where congruent messages to multiple senses make an experience many times more resonant and potent. This is why the sound agency's been asking clients the question, how does your brand sound, for almost 20 years. It's why every brand should have brand guidelines that cover sound, smell, touch and taste, as well as colours, typography and images. And why architects need to design with their ears and their noses, as well as their eyes. People in cities spend around 90% of their lives indoors and all their senses are working. The consistent message from Charles Spence, Sally Augustine and Oliver Heath is that if you combine biophilia, the power of reconnecting with nature, with consciously multi-sensory design, you have a potent new way of creating a more healthy, productive and enjoyable built environment, whether that's workspace, healthcare, education, hospitality, or your home. Sound Business is brought to you by The Sound Agency, designing effective business sound since 2003, and is co-produced by Podcast Network Solutions, a full-service podcast production company who are ready to help you plan, record, produce, and promote your message with podcasting. To find out more about how The Sound Agency can boost your business with bespoke sound, and to grab your free copy of our four golden rules for sound, visit thesoundagency.com forward slash podcast. 